Since 2009, SharesPost has been a leader in the secondary market for private company shares. With its network of 44,000 accredited investors and 150,000 members, SharesPost has transacted in more than 190 private companies. Whether you're an investor or a shareholder looking for liquidity, SharesPost has a solution for you. Visit us at SharesPost.com. Coming up on Equity, Roku tanks after earnings, Snap's investors aren't making money, but the CEO sure is. Airbnb is getting into luxury in a big acquisition in New York. Welcome to Equity. I'm TechCrunch's Katie Roof, joined by my colleague, Matthew Lindley. Hello. Crunchbase News Editor-in-Chief, Alex Wilhelm. Hey, hey. And our special guest today is Hillary Gosher, who's in town from New York, where she is a Managing Director at Insight Venture Partners. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us. All the way from the East Coast, where it is, I think, snowing yet again. But yesterday, it was 60 degrees. It's an odd mix of weather out there. I'm glad to be back in the very cold, yet sunny San Francisco. We wanted to start with Roku this week, which we were talking about a bit last year, uh, particularly after their IPO, and, and things had gone really well for the company for a while. They're in the business of digital streaming devices. They compete with Apple TV and Chromecast and all the other things for cord cutters. Uh, they were doing well, but yesterday or Wednesday, they shared their financials and Wall Street kind of freaked out. Uh, their stock, yeah, the, yeah, their stock went down a lot. Um, I mean, they went out, they went went down almost twenty percent, or it went down about eighteen percent on Thursday. And there were a few things behind this. They actually did beat for the quarter. They beat expectations. They had one hundred eighty-eight point three million in revenue, which was above estimates of one hundred eighty-two point five. Uh, their earnings per share was actually a lot better. It was it was six cents per share versus the negative ten cents that Wall Street was forecasting. However, it's the outlook for the next quarter that was one of the issues. Part of the issue is that they they're expecting um, they're expecting revenue to be lower than what analysts are expecting for next quarter. And also, I think analysts in in, in Wall Street in general are concerned because. Roku has two businesses, it's its platform business and its player business, and its player business, which is basically its hardware business, is in decline. Their, their platform business is actually growing very fast and doing very well, but if you're focused on Roku's hardware business, they're actually making less money than they were the year before. And as we know, Wall Street likes growth. But their hardware business has no margins to it, right? I think we talked about this at the time of the IPO, that it's the streaming business that has all the actual uh, positive income for them. So maybe it's not the worst thing in the world. But this is a kind of a lesson for people that watch earnings lightly, but not too deeply, because sometimes people say, oh, they beat. Why are they down? Well, forecast is 95% of the time the reason why you get punched that hard. But you know, they only dropped essentially down in the public markets back to their early January share price. So this wasn't like you know a complete destruction of their value in the markets, but it was I don't know, kind of a shockingly sharp correction. Well, I mean, I it's not like Netflix, which lives in an alternate universe, right? To your point, Roku prices IPO at fourteen dollars a share, and it's still above forty. Yeah. So, but. I, I mean, the the what's kind of confusing with the, I mean, if you're sort of looking at the hardware numbers and you're saying the hardware is going down. Google was essentially giving away a Chromecast when it first came out. They it came out with like a Netflix subscription or something like that, three months free for Netflix subscriptions, and I guess they probably charge for it now. But at the same time, it's like. The, you don't like this is a Trojan horse, right? The hardware is not supposed to be the thing that's actually making money. It's the thing that's supposed to get it in, on, into your TV so you can actually start paying for those services. It's the same playbook that's being run by, well, probably being run by Google, but also by like Xiaomi and China and a couple of these other guys, right? So, Roku's uh, 
You know, Roku's strategy is really just to start working with smart TVs and embed their hardware right into those TVs. So I think they're, as you said, the hardware's a red herring. If you're looking at their transition to platform revenue, it's the platform revenue where the growth is. And it's the platform revenue, frankly, that has the secular tailwinds. So all the stuff you've talked about on the show brief before around the cord cutters and the, the, the move to streaming, that revenue and that uh, advertising was up. So if you look year over year, if I recall, um, their uh, number of streaming hours is up, the number of users is up, uh, and the ARPU is up. In fact, the yeah. ARPU is up quite significantly. Yeah, the average revenue per user for, for those of you who aren't regular listeners of the show. But um, no, that's I, that's exactly right. I mean, really, they're, all aspects of their business are growing for the most part other than their hardware sales. So if you were betting on Roku as a hardware business, then yeah, you're going to be disappointed. But if you believe in Roku's operating system, they're now in one in five smart TVs sold in the U.S. One in five. Yes. So if you're if so if you're betting on the operating system of you know people listening and, and actually people watching content on Roku more, then their their streaming hours grew fifty five percent year over year. Their active accounts increased forty four percent year over year, and then their average advertising revenue is way up because they have various partnerships with with various content providers. So. Uh, if you're looking at them as as a Roku system, uh, then then they're doing well. And it's a fact- bit like uh, razors and razor blades, if you think mm-hmm. about it. Um, you know, the hardware part is just the razors. It's how much razor blades or how many razor blades are they selling. And that platform revenue is, I think, where the long-term secular tailwinds are. And that's what you really want to be looking at, I think, if you're an investor. Well, I mean, also, uh, you know, you, we can say it's like, oh, my gosh, the stock fell like 18% or something like that. But this is like, I feel like this is really common for recent IPOs because there's just not a lot of data to work with, right? You don't have a lot of like, I mean, Roku, I mean, we have what, there's like five or six or 10 years of data or however old this company is, right? But uh, at the same time, it's like, you you know, you have to kind of be constantly recalibrating. You're not like Apple where you can only get like a 3% swing or something. I mean, I guess 3% is still like $20 billion or whatever. Well, right? Roku's so actually money. more than 15 years old, so, so yeah. it's a little different than your typical IPO, but it's true. Like, you really were focusing on the, uh, the past few years leading up to an IPO as they change right. their business and shift it towards a public company ready business. Well, they moved away from the hardware business almost entirely, right? That was their core business, I want to say eight years ago or whatever it was. So that prehistory is really essentially almost non impactful. Right. Sorry. And their long term um, outlook for 2018, not just for the next quarter, was right in line with guidance. So, you know, I think if you're a long term hold on the stock, which I think most people are, uh, of the institutional investors, what you really see, I think, is just price taking and fluctuation right now with. Um, uh, with the recent news. Regular reminder that this show does not constitute investing advice, and so do not take <laughs> yeah. anything we say as a method. We don't talk about but, good but deals you know, on here. That's against the rules. Speaking <laughs> of advice, I think that that maybe GoPro and Fitbit and others can learn from this, because as we've seen, there were some companies that really uh, built a business around a popular hardware device, and maybe people just wanted one device and they didn't want to upgrade all the time, so even their most loyal users uh, weren't regular buyers of the products. And so uh, I think that Roku was really, really smart. Uh, they made a really great decision ahead of their IPO to shift their business more towards the platform. And I think other hardware businesses sh- should watch and learn. And easier said than done. It's it's really hard to build a great operating system as well and, and to build out all these partnerships. But that's that's something that CEO Anthony Wood did, did right. Yeah. I mean, also, there are very few comp- companies that have successfully essentially completed a complete business shift, right? I mean, there's like Facebook and 
dot 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 right like, <laughs> there's been a few others but <laughs> I mean Google's been trying for a long time to not become an ad business well, no, but like right actually after they went Netflix public, right? did Netflix yeah, was yeah. in the CD business yeah that's right yeah, yeah. yeah. now they're yeah. in the streaming and the content business you know my parents I think are going to be the last customers to give up their Netflix DVDs they're still very <laughs> thankful Roku was actually an idea that was born out of Netflix. Yeah, but uh, moving along to other companies that have recently taken a firm whacking in the public markets, uh, we have Snap, which apparently declined today for one of two reasons. One was a tweet from a very important celebrity, and the other was the fact that it paid its CEO all the money in the world last year while losing several billion dollars. Now, I want to poll Lindley, because I think he has an opinion about this. Lindley, which was more impactful than Snap's decline today, Kylie Jenner's tweet or Evan Spiegel's income? I mean, I'm personally of the opinion that the only people that can like probably move a stock on Twitter like Carl Icahn and Reed Hastings and that's about it right so like I, maybe I, Bezos as well but yeah, it's not yeah. that many people um, but I the, mean, if you're tweeting about it, the infinity clock yeah sure like, yeah. <laughs> I think it actually fell because of a, a, an analyst at Citi downgrading the stock and so people inferred that that had to do with Kylie Jenner because the reason that the analyst gave was that there was a lot of negativity around it but they're ignoring the fact that there was a, a million people who signed a change.org pe- petition trying to get Snapchat to change it redesign. There were a lot of other complaints. Kylie admittedly is one of the more influential voices that complained about it, but to say that the stock fell a ridiculous amount just because of Kylie Jenner's tweet is a bit of a stretch. I mean, especially since the analyst didn't say that he did this because of Kylie. He said he downgraded it because of widespread. I mean, you couldn't get away from the tweets from very, very sad teenagers who were like, what have you done to my snap? I don't want to go to Instagram, but I'm already there. So a combination of the tweet, the public impact, the downgrade, and also the fact that they paid Evan Spiegel about $638 million in 2017 alone. Uh, which is a staggering sum of money for a company that I think, if I recall the numbers, lost about 350 million last quarter, which was more than it had in revenue. Uh, so to pay your exec that much is kind of a staggering amount of money that I think is indicative of where we are in the current unicorn cycle, and that things can just get really far outside the bounds of normalcy and uh, sanity. They paid him in stock, or they paid him in actual cash. Because uh, stock, stock would be a good is, idea. Stock aligns long term incentives with him making sure that the company continues to grow. But why not give him just a hundred million? What's five hundred million between friends? <laughs> I can tell you. I can tell you exactly. It's five hundred million dollars. That's how much it is between friends. Some estimates said it's the third largest CEO payout ever. And so, yes, they actually did determine this ahead of the IPO, so maybe they were really bullish about the company being a successful public company at the time. But it's a lot of money. And yes, he founded the business, and and I'm actually not against people who start successful businesses making a lot of money, but considering investors haven't make it made pretty much any money at all since the time of the IPO, which is barely above the IPO price, it does look bad now that the filing is coming out. And the company just got back over its IPO price. I mean, that happened after its last earnings report. It was down to like, I bought 13, 14 bucks a share. So it was underwater until about 17 minutes ago. And during that year's performance, they paid him that much money. But here's a fun little trivia question. Uh, guess his official cash salary last year. Is it like a dollar or whatever, like those normal executives? Or? Yeah, it was officially a dollar, but according no, to the filing, it was more than like $98,000. Yeah, Reuters says yeah. $98,000. I mean, why yeah. even bother? <laughs> if you're going to give someone $636 million in stock, I mean, why even give them cash? 
Right, and their chief oh, strategy man. officer Imran Khan made over a hundred million, and then they had uh, they had some general counsels that made tens of millions of dollars, and they weren't even there the whole year. There was a switch mid year, and so um, so the, he wasn't the only one with a big payout for sure. But it's a little bit of social media is living under their own hubris here. <laughs> you know, everybody believing that they're gods and that they're your know, next social media platform. You know, the reality is, as you said, there's three hundred million people on Instagram, and there's only 180 million on Snap. So, you know, that alone might speak for itself. And, you know, Roku, for example, we just spoke about it. Roku has um, uh, an ARPU, average revenue per user, about 13 bucks. You can pay the $1.50 for Snap. Snap has a long way to go. I do think that Snap has um, opportunities to monetize their users. The problem is growing their users has been a problem because ever since Instagram copied Snap stories, I mean, in, in fairness, they did copy it. It was Snap's idea. But uh, it's it's been a struggle to, to keep users as engaged on Snapchat. Actually, uh, Lindley and I saw Evan Spiegel speak last week at the Goldman Sachs conference in San Francisco. And he basically was talking all about how their goal is to be copied, which... Wait, what? Well... I think his point was imitation is a form of flattery, right? That, that I think that was really his yeah. point that he was making. I mean, yes, it's true. Like, obviously, they were the ones that were innovative and came up with these stories. But the problem is uh, they haven't been innovative enough since. Snapchat was innovative several times in the early days of the disappearing messages and the other things that caught on with, you know, with the filters and all that. But um, lately, they haven't kept up. Well, and it's hard to say exactly. I mean, on stage at uh, the Goldman conference uh, last week he was I mean he essentially said like users need to learn how to use the redesign and if they and because <laughs> I'm semi paraphrasing right but it's like you know you need to learn how to use it and when you learn how to use it it'll be good right um, but I mean for a company like snap you if you're looking at Instagram literally making a freaking carbon copy of one of your core products and using that to leach away your users you do have to kind of you know, institute some kind of radical change that might not necessarily initially resonate with users. And, you know, we're saying like, oh, it has 100 million daily active users and the change.org petition is 1 million, right? And Kylie Jenner has like, what, how many followers? 25 million. 25 million oh, followers, wow. right? That's a few. Um, against Twitter's whatever it is, 330 million monthly active users, da 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 This still strikes me as like actually like a relatively small fraction. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, if you get so, 1.2 million uh, signatures on a change.org petition, you know, you can imply that there's a much bigger group that just didn't see it or didn't sign on. That that indicates a large upswell. But my question is, you know, whenever Facebook back in like 2010 would change a button, everyone would lose their mind, oh, right? It's true. Yeah. Right, right. So my, my question is, I, I, I want to wait like another couple of beats here and then see what people do with this and see if it actually sticks as a criticism, uh, but if his message was get used to it, you know, you could soften that. Paraphrasing. Paraphrasing. And by the way, I also <laughs> mentioned that the, the Snapchat redesign sucked a few weeks back, way before Kylie Jenner. So, I mean, you know. So, actually, <laughs> Just the, <saying. laughs> the real reason why Snap is down is because Katie. No. Um, <laughs> I find it fun and whimsical, but I'm just, and if your company is still more than 100% negative net margin in the last quarter, don't pay yourself hundreds of millions of dollars when your shares were mostly underneath their IPO price. It just seems If you're looking like for investors taste. to give you the benefit of the doubt, that's not a good way to go about it. Exactly. And what do you want in this life? Benefit of the doubt, apparently. Always. That mm -hmm. makes a better analogy for me. Yeah, right. so Spiegel's exact words, well, not exact, uh, but the you know some of the quotes that he said was, you do need folks to use the product, to communicate with their friends, to learn how to better provide that feed, dot, dot, dot. 
even the complaints we're seeing reinforce the philosophy, even the frustrations we're seeing really validate those changes. It'll take time for people to adjust, but for me using it for a couple months, I feel way more attached to the service, aka learn how to use the learn service. How to use it. <laughs> okay, so that, that's a much better phrasing than I than I expected yeah. from him. That's actually relatively politic. Yeah. And I think they did acknowledge some potential modifications this week to the update but for now it's been terrible like I I can't even I mean the stories are intermixed with the messages and I can't even find what I'm looking for so remember it's not all done for the users right they they said that part of the reason they were doing it was to attract more advertising and get more advertising revenue if you're Instagram and you don't have to show the advertising revenue and you're kind of buried under the big Facebook behemoth you know you can make all sorts of changes and you're not required to try and force advertising you can just have that as a nice you know, traffic filter, but uh, Snap actually needs this. ARPU up, number of users down. I don't yep. know. <laughs> that, that can bounce up, but I am on that topic surprised. I read my Instagram feed about once a week. I'm trying to not do that sort of thing, but like, it's amazing how many ads are on Instagram now. Like, it's a staggering, just sheer quantity. I don't like using it because every third image is an ad, I want to say. So they've really bumped that ad load up as much as they can. I wonder how much of Facebook's growth has been through Instagram's increasing ad load. Also, the suggested user thing is really, really annoying. Yeah. That's like, I don't know. There's a lot of annoying things in uh, in Instagram. Speaking of annoying unicorns, though, I think you have uh, one. Good segue. Thank Great you. segue. Um, so, uh, you know, Brian Chesky went on stage today at an event in San Francisco to the sound of, insert, thousands of employees clapping their hands, unveiling a new, <laughs> uh, unveiling a couple new products for Airbnb, mostly ones that are ta- tailored towards higher end customers. They are called Airbnb Plus, which is a plus version of Airbnb, and Beyond by Airbnb, which is a very fancy name for saying a luxury service for Airbnb. The idea being that they basically want to uh, have this sort of standard you know, array of homes on their platform and, you know, have like however many hundreds of thousands of homes and however many millions of users and da 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 And then also have the like preferred section with, you know, homes that have specifically a rating of 4.7999 rounded up and speci- and people walking in, going through a checklist, making sure it's great, and then theoretically being able to charge more or something along those lines. Essentially catering to an audience What's- that was already there, but... Hoping, hoping to kind of suss them out more and figure out how to like properly price yeah. the actual homes on the on the product. What do you get? What are the things on the list? Like, what should I expect if I go to one of these? You know, full featured Airbnbs. That is an excellent question. <laughs> they want you to roll towels like you would get in a high end boutique hotel. They want you to get rid of personalized items. Please, no pictures of your kids and dogs because we want it to be more of a clean, austere environment and make it feel more like a hotel. At the same time, they're putting boutique hotels right next to those premium properties because they want to increase the boutique hotel uh, revenue. Right. I can't tell if that's totally brilliant or not very smart. Right, and so they're basically, they're, they're taking these like three segments that they had, uh, what is like private private room, shared space, and full home, and fracturing it into a bunch of different verticals that... You know, hosts can specifically like segment what theirs is. Is it a B and B? Is it a luxury place? So on and so on and so forth. Or is it just like a shared space or whatever? You know, is it some like tiny Airbnb in the middle of Kabukicho and Shinjuku, right? That you can charge like sixty bucks for or whatever, right? Um, and the idea being that you know, if you have if you're going up against the hospitality industry, which is you know like relatively large, right? Um, you're going up against like Marriotts and things like that, right? Um, if I'm like a five-star hotel in uh, Tokyo or Hong Kong or something like that, I can go to go on to like Agoda or TripAdvisor or whatever and be like, I'm a five-star hotel, right? On Airbnb, if I'm a like quote-unquote five-star, oh, if I'm a five-star home with like a 4.9 rating, 
that I say is like a luxury, luxury like pad in the middle of like, you know, going back to the Tokyo example, Shibuya, like at the top of like one of the buildings versus, you know, and price at, you know, whatever is $230. Guess what? That tiny freaking apartment in Shinjuku that costs like 60 bucks is probably also like a 4.9 rating, right? So it's like, how do you actually differentiate those other than like flipping through the photos and not knowing if it's actually like what it, what it looks like in the photos? So that's kind of what this is geared towards, which is like, this is our verified like checkmark version that well, you're going to get. Well, I would also guess that, and you know, Airbnb's never broken out their revenue, but I would guess that most of the revenue comes from the high-end part. I mean, it surely does. You know, the $500 a night home or the $300 a night apartment is going to make them a lot more money than the $60 room in the middle of nowhere. And so what they want to do is really make sure that they they, they position that premium offering because it's going to drive more revenue and more profit. I think this is a great move ahead of going public, which whenever it will be, because they just lost their CF. But um, because r- really, like, there's a big opportunity to be made in luxury travel. You can you can make a lot more money per per location, and um, really, Airbnb needs to extend beyond millennials. Surely, they have customers who aren't millennials, but they need to target uh, business travelers and others who travel all the time. That would be a really big opportunity for the company. So, I do think it's a great move. Some people may laugh and think it sounds a little pretentious, but I think it's going to track the whole new world of clientele for them who maybe are used to the five-star hotel treatment but might like the idea of more space than a hotel room. They might like the idea of staying in, in a, a multi-million dollar home and in, in a neighborhood when, and living like a local when they go to a city but not want to feel like they're just staying in someone's tiny apartment. So I think there's an opportunity there and I think it's good a good branding move especially. There's a lot of other stuff that's also doing to lock in the, the host uh, so, for example, I don't know if you saw, they're providing loans for you to improve your home. Whoa, financing! Uh huh. So, uh, but what that means is you'll be able to pay for the lo- you'll be able to pay for the loan via future rentals. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as you do those future rentals, you'll be paying off your loan. It's great because it locks in you as the host to their platform, especially since Booking and uh, Expedia are coming after that with HomeAway, and they're also doing more rentals. This way, you lock in your own. So kind of like when you release a car from Uber and you get that taken out of your Uber income, you have to keep staying on Uber. You can't just go to Lyft. Okay, that's pretty cool. But I'm curious to Katie's point how big the market segment is between people who want to have the cheap kind of relative like in-house uh, uh, accommodation versus the boutique hotel and how big that middle ground will be. Because uh, I wonder if the idea of like living like a local or being in the neighborhood really resonates to the business traveler who just wants to show up to the meeting on time and have the Wi-Fi work. Well, I mean, the well, business or luxury travel. Yeah, I, mean, I, was, yeah, I, was, I mean, I was going to say like the same people that are probably going to take it public, like Goldman Sachs or whatever, want these like nice luxury hotels. I'm sure like they have all the money in the On the roadshow. Yeah. <laughs> I doubt they're going to be staying in Airbnbs on the Airbnb roadshow. Yeah. I think Airbnb will make them. Oh, gosh. <laughs> now, well, now I've jinxed it. So now I'm definitely going to lose. I mean, Beyonce, when she was here for the Super Bowl, apparently stayed in like a $40 million home or whatever. I mean, actually, I think that there is an appeal for some some people who want to stay in a nice place that have have more space, more privacy, especially for certain clientele like that. Uh, I, I do think there is a market opportunity for it. No, do I, I, I don't think like your average business traveler is going to stop staying at hotels, but I do think that they have, there's definitely a market opportunity and it's a good opportunity for growth ahead of an IPO. But as I was mentioning earlier, though, we don't know when that's going to be especially because the CFO just left, which is a pretty big deal for a pre-IPO company. I mean, also, like, we're talking about the Plus version, but they also have, like, the ultra, ultra high-level version, which is basically going after, like, the Atlantis and the Bahamas, right? This sort of, like, full-stack, like, all-inclusive resort where, because Airbnb is kind of, 
you know, they have they have like two two verticals, right? They have the home vertical, right, which is you, um, you know, you you rent your tiny apartment in the middle of Bangkok or you know, uh, Sao Paulo or whatever, right? Um, and they have the experience vertical, which is like here are all the things that crazy things you can do in this in you know whatever city you're in, like you know whether it's some some guy taking you out and getting you drunk in the middle of Tokyo or something like that, right? You know, weird things like that. And they haven't really stuck them together, right? Or, or they've been kind of discreet in, in a lot of ways. When you go to the site, you search, uh, you know, Rio de Janeiro. It'll be, do you want experiences or homes? The luxury vertical is kind of this idea, I think, of it trying to make those two into a single thing. So it's like, I want to go and bring my family to a vacation on the beach, whatever. Like, how much money is it co- going to cost? And then say I'm a super host, I'm, I go... Okay, you know, I got your back. Come to Bali. I'm going to charge you $1,200 a night. We're going to feed you. We're going to take you all over the place. You're going to be on the beach. You're going to have this awesome home that fits all these criteria, so on and so on and so forth. We don't know what it looks like yet exactly, but that's something that would get, that's, you know, again, the higher, higher, high, high, high tier is usually the thing that pays for everything under it, right? Right. And if that's where all the revenue comes from, they can drive their average revenue per trip or ARPT right. uh, <laughs> by doing this. I was saving that acronym for like two minutes. Average, average weekly rebookers. I'd like oh, to see a fancy Airbnb yeah. on a beachfront property. I mean, some of these places might even have private beaches, so oh, I don't know. Maybe. Oh, they definitely do. I rented they a beautiful do. house in Cape Town two years ago, uh, five bedrooms, my friends and I, and it was a really luxury experience. We could have rented five rooms in a hotel, but it was so much better being in a house. Those are the kind of, I think, experiences that they're trying to give people. That sounds awesome. It was awesome. Yeah. Yeah, of course, there's no water there now, but that's a different story. That. I wish we had time for that story. If you haven't, look up the water problems in South Africa. Anyways. Cape Town. Yeah. So, um, non sequitur. So, so the last thing we're going to run through because we, you know, we talked about some big public companies. We talked about some big moves. But we have a huge deal um, for a number of reasons. Uh, a Swiss pharmaceutical company called Roche is buying Flatiron Health for $1.9 billion. This is a big for a couple of things, a couple of reasons. One, it's, you know, it's a big deal in pharma and uh, and biotechnology and things like that too. It's a huge exit for New York. Three, uh, it's another, you know, another. I think Google Ventures is a really big investor in this, right? So, um, but also, I th- we talked a little about it a little bit before the show about how a lot of these companies, uh, they're running, you know, they're running into potential walls where they just don't know what to do with their data or they don't have enough data and trying to, and then where you have all these other startups coming in realizing that they have they know how to kind of apply the right data science to get you know maybe it's like better drug targeting or better you know office you know office visits matching doctors things like that right and know understanding how to manipulate that and how to actually divine customer insight out of it and these older guys the, or these larger companies they're just not really configured to do that right even if they do have data but I, I don't know I'm curious like you know what you what do you think looking at a deal like this I mean you're based in New York right so like what what does this look like to you? Uh, it's a great one for New York Tech. I do think that um, you know Roche was already an investor. They're already about a thirteen percent holder, and so they've really just you know purchased the full company now. Still planning to hold it separately. I think oncology is a specific, um, its own specific beast. It's a really complex drug therapeutic. There's a lot of changes between dosing and the concoctions that you put together for for it. And so, you know, from my point of view, the reason why Roche would do this is twofold. One, um, you know, pricing, uh, maintaining pricing, and we all know pharma prices have come under a lot of uh, a stress recently, but uh, if you can choose 
improve safety and efficacy, you can continue to price high. And so by having all this data around how the various therapies work, Roche will be able to potentially maintain prices. But the second thing is that kind of real world insight into what's really going on on the ground in the clinics uh, might engage, enable Roche to understand where therapies are being used off-label by physicians. And everybody wants to know the off-label usages that work because then you can go to the FDA and get another indication, which could be huge future value. But if you don't really have the data coming at you from the clinics, it's very hard to know how it's being used in the field. So I think this is a good move by Roche. I mean, it, it, you're right. It's definitely a big win for New York as well, which um, lately they've they've had quite a few exits. For the longest time when I was living in New York and I was trying to cover the New York tech scene, there was a lot of money getting poured in to the, to the startup scene there that never saw the light of day. So I think that that's definitely an interesting point here that, they, that there was a big acquisition in New York. Uh, I mean, they've had Tumblr, but... Uh, <laughs> oh, Mongo. <laughs> MongoDB, right? Exactly. Right. And they, 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 but last year we saw several IPOs, MongoDB... Blue Apron, which is one of insights. Yes. So, yeah. Everyone loves oh, yes. Howard. Yes, but we're starting. Everyone to, loves Howard. But we're yes. starting to see a lot more venture-backed exits in New York, and so this is is one of them. But yeah, I mean, we don't normally cover healthcare on our show, but this is an interesting mix of healthcare and tech. Uh, it, and, it, it, and it was really born out of some people who worked at Google. As you said, Google invested a lot of money, first round capital, SV Angel, Aaron Levy. Yeah, I was about Alex to bring that basically up. basically has a man crush on. False, <laughs> false, true, false. God, um, gosh. I was going to say that if you look at the company's funding history, it's really, really dramatic because they raised an $8 million Series A in uh, like early 2013 and then $130 million Series B like 14, 15 months later. Like, that's crazy. <laughs> they, ran, they went from like a regular Series A to a whole Series A fund um, in about 15 months. That's nuts. It's interesting, uh, you know, pulling out, you know, data out of electronic healthcare systems. It's a it's a big job to do. There's so many of them. It's a very fragmented industry, and that's how you're getting your data. So I think one thing, as Katie, you say, this forebodes is potentially more of big pharma, uh, big hospitals getting into big data. They need the information in order to be able to target customers, consumers, the right therapeutics. It, it leads to better outcomes in the long run. We had some investors in here, though, that don't normally invest in healthcare. Uh, I mean, what do you think? Like, are, are we going to see? I mean, right, normally it seems like there's a separation at venture firms where there's some people who do healthcare and some people who just do tech. But do you think we're, we've seen now with like 23andMe that there's starting to be a bridge between those two industries? Do you think we're going to see more uh, traditional tech investors looking at healthcare opportunities? Well, healthcare tech, especially if it's SaaS, looks like any other SaaS company. Insight just recently invested in. A company called Central Reach, which does an EHR and workflow management for EHR. electronic health yeah, EMR, electronic medical record, <laughs> similar, uh, but for behavioral health uh, uh, clinics and um, speech clinics uh, and therapists. And uh, you know, those niche areas, there's lots of data coming out around what the therapies work and it behaves like a SaaS company. It's recurring revenue, it's in the physician's hospital, they pay regularly, all the data comes through, they use it as their main system to run their office. It's a great business model. So it's not as much healthcare as it is tech. Awesome. Well, thanks for tuning in. Come back next week. All right, everyone. We want to say a special thanks to our producer, TechCrunch's own Christopher Gates, our executive producer, Henry Pickovet. Thank you to Katie Roof. Thank you to Matthew Lindley. And thank you to you for leaving us that five-star iTunes review. That's Equity. We'll see you all next Friday. <laughs>